If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in John 2 this morning. Listen, if you are new with us this morning or even over the past few weeks, our, our normal methodology, like our normal way of doing things is simply to just go straight through books of the Bible. We go uh, chapter by chapter. We go even even verse by verse, just trying to uh, seek God in the way that He has presented Him self to us. And so we prioritize the Word of God, and, and, and we let Him Him speak to us in, in, in the most in the most honest way that we can. We let Him dictate the circumstances. We let Him set the course for us, and that forces us to keep in line with Him. It keeps us on His path, and at times it, it, it forces us to deal with topics that we might uh, in certain seasons, even be tempted to avoid. And, and in a lot of ways, just tracking with his word keeps us honest. It keeps me from ever going, you know what, I just don't want to have to deal with that issue. I, I don't want to have to get into that. And so as we sit here today in John 2, um, we're dealing with an issue that we might want to avoid, that we might be tempted to just kind of skip over because we're dealing with what does it look like to truly worship our Lord and our Savior. And we're going to be looking today at verses uh, 12 through 25. And what I do now is just ask you to stand with me and let's tune our hearts to the word of our Lord. This again, we stand now because this is a demonstration. It's an outward demonstration that we stand on the foundation of the word. We, we are Bible people. We're, we're creatures of the word. So this is John 2, uh, starting with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling sheep and oxen and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this day. Again, we thank you, as has been uh, said already, we thank you that we can be here. And we thank you that we enjoy the freedom uh, to gather here this morning. We did not come here this morning under threat of death. Uh, we did not risk life and limb to get here. God, we probably came here in our own car, with our own air conditioning, with our own music playing. 
God, break us of our comfort this morning. Uh, would you speak to us through your word in a way that would, that would echo in our hearts, that would be impossible to miss? Or would you speak to us today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we have been introduced to Jesus uh, over the course of the opening two chapters of this gospel, uh, one of the ways that we have been introduced to him uh, is as the Lamb of God. That's how John the Baptist referred to Jesus on two separate occasions. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away his sin. Then he pointed at him again as his disciples were standing there, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Of God, And so this is an image of Jesus that's going to stick with us throughout this gospel. As, as we know that, that our Lamb of God is eventually going to end up on the cross, that his ministry of reconciliation, his ministry of redemption ultimately leads to Calvary. And so we know that and we understand that. And when I consider a lamb, like when I stop and think, and I did this test with my kids this week, when you think of a lamb, what do you think of? I think of something gentle. Like I think of something soft. I think of something pleasant. I think of something peaceful. I think of a lamb as being very docile, you know? They're not hyper-aggressive creatures. They're just, they're nice and tender. Truthfully, when I think of a lamb, it is the exact opposite of what I see of Jesus in this passage in chapter 2. What we see here in chapter 2 is not gentle, It is not docile. It is not soft. What we see of Jesus in chapter 2 is what I would describe as ferocious. It's less lamb and more lion. You see, the scene that we find in this passage isn't just an absolute mess, okay? It is a train wreck, what is happening there in the temple. We know that he has made his way down from Cana to Capernaum, and and we know that he stayed there for a few days. We saw that in verse 12, right, that he's been there for a few days. Hopefully you noticed that at this point we have broken from the sequential days that had begun the first chapter of John, where it was the next day, the next day, the next day, and then after a few days or or on the third day, now we've got after some time. And so we begin to see that John is telling the story here, not necessarily in, in, in in linear form. He's not just going day to day. He's telling us, he's painting this picture of the Lamb of God. But this picture doesn't seem like a lamb in this passage. We know that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. It's what that means that it's early spring there in Palestine. Um, If if you, uh, you also see that he went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're one of those people who turns and looks at the maps, if you've ever wondered why those things are there, I'm one of those people. I I appreciate the geography of it. If you look on there, you'll notice that from uh, Capernaum to Jerusalem is south, but you always go up to Jerusalem. It's the holy city. It's the place. Geographically, it it sits southern from where they have been, but but in elevation, it's up. It's the holy hill of the people of God. So you always go up to Jerusalem. This is an exciting time of year for the Jewish people. Uh, It's a time of expectancy. They're excited. The only parallel I can really think to even begin uh, to describe this in our culture would be sort of the way we approach Christmas. 
It's, it's, the, it's the busiest and biggest event of the year. This is when families are going to be reunited. They've all been scattered out in the different areas, and now they're going to be coming together. So they're, they're catching up with one another, telling stories to one another of what has been going on. This is not a small thing. They are swarming into the city. Jerusalem is not an, an enormous city by any stretch of the imagination, and yet it is being overwhelmed in this season with people coming there to celebrate this, this biggest event of the year together. They're swarming there. You see, Passover is not a small thing. You need to picture that in your mind, sort of the madness that is that season. If you can imagine your floor after Christmas morning when the presents have been opened, that's sort of what Jerusalem feels like at that time. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. The idea here is, is that Jesus is entering into an overwhelming situation. These people have been preparing for this. They've been traveling there together. They have been singing the songs. They, at this point, they would have been singing together for days as they made their journey. They've been singing what are called the Hallel songs, these, these songs of ascent. That's, it's Psalms 113 through 118. If you want to go and read them, they're just these just doxological psalms of the greatness and glory of God. They've been singing these together from memory, by the way. They're singing them as they walk down the road. I, when I think of some of the songs that I have memorized in my brain, when, when, my, when my wife found the Pandora station from like our days of high school and she put it on and all of a sudden I was able to re-sing all of these just garbage songs. Um, it's so sad to me that that's what's full, uh, that my mind is full of that rather than the psalms, the songs of Jesus, right? They would have had that. That's the soundtrack that's playing over the entirety of this event. They're singing praise to God from memory. It's a spectacle. You know, when you see a group of people going, when there's a mass of people going, even the outsiders want to come and see what's that about. And so there would have been a huge portion of, of just Gentile people coming at that time to see what is this all about? What are they going so crazy over? I mean, why do they all migrate here? What is happening in this moment? And so that's what Jesus is walking into. He's walking into this chaotic scene. It's not about presence. It's not about family reunions. Passover is primarily about worship. It's about worship of God. So look back at verse 14 with me. Look at in 14, we're told that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So let's, let's, all right, let's paint this picture just a little bit. The temple at the time of Jesus is undergoing a massive construction, uh, sort of renovation project. The, the temple of Solomon, the original temple, had been destroyed ages before this. If you remember your Old Testament at all, Nehemiah has come uh, after the Babylonians had released them. Or actually, the Persians set them free. He said, you'll go and, and rebuild your stuff. Nehemiah comes. He starts building it. The people who remembered the old temple, the few who were left, wept because the new one being built in its place was so pathetic compared to the original. And so now in this day, uh, it's not the, necessarily the Jews who have undertaken this. It's Herod trying to earn some pleasure with the Jewish people. Herod has, has begun this building campaign, and the temple has gone from a house of worship, from the Holy of Holies to, to an entire complex. And it's not done yet, by the way. It's not going to be done for another 30-some-odd years after this 46 years that they've already been working on it. 
They're going to finish it in about 67, and in 70, the Romans are going to destroy it all again. It's just the, the, the circle of the temple, effectively. But that's what's going on now. There's, they're, they're there, it's being worked on, and this event is taking place. If you, if you, again, if you're a, a map person, you probably have a map in the back of your Bible of the, of the Jerusalem temple. You can see there that it's this massive complex. And this event is taking place not necessarily in the sanctuary, but sort of on a balcony that surrounds the entire thing. It's called the Court of the Gentiles, and it's the one place at the temple that even the outsider was allowed to come to. Like he's allowed to come to that place, but upon threat of death, he dare not go any further. From there on, it gets, it gets smaller and smaller who's allowed to go in. From there, it's the, it's the court of the women. So the Jewish women were allowed to go to there. And beyond that, you get into other courts, and then eventually you get to the Holy of Holies, and that place only had one priest go in it once a year. And so it's just kind of the way it was built then. And what we see there is that you've got this business taking place in the court of the Gentiles. That's what's happening there. I, John doesn't deal with the, the dishonesty that might be taking place there in terms of the money changers, whether or not they were ripping people off or whether or not they were overcharging for the animals. John doesn't deal with that, so I'm not going to deal with that either. What I would tell you is what's taking place there is really sort of a legitimate business. They're sort of serving a necessity. People have been coming from miles and miles away, and now they're coming. They need to make their sacrifice, and they need their clean animal. They need to be able to change their money over into the Jewish currency. And so in theory, and if, that's a big if, by the way, if uncorrupted by human greed, they are providing a legitimate service. But here's where the problem arises. In the midst of this place of worship, this place that God had set apart for worship, in the midst of this temple to the Lord, they have set up what I would just call stumbling blocks. And they're actually preventing people from being able to worship. And that's the problem we need to consider today as we look at this passage. Since the earthly temples are insufficient for worship, our Heavenly Father sent us a true and better temple in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at in the following verses. It's, a, it's what true worship is. The, the first thing we're going to say today is that true worship is undistracted. True worship is undistracted. The second thing is that true worship is wholehearted. That is our whole heart in worship. And the last thing that we're going to hit on today is that true worship is Christ-centered. Look back at verse 15 with me. Jesus has, he has seen this with his own eyes. He's walked into the temple. And so if you can imagine walking with him into that, and he sees what's taking place, or he sees the chaos of this scene. And here's what it says in 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, at this point, we begin to understand that, that, that this lamb this gentle, soft lamb, this, this one's got some teeth to him. This is the lamb of God, and the lamb of God is the lion. You see, it's not a, it's, this is not a moment of subtlety for Jesus. Like He's not coming in there and, and gently saying, you know, it'd be really nice if we didn't have this happening over here. When you start making a whip and driving things out, that is next level, okay? That's, that's not, would you please move from here? That's, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to allow this. There's a ferociousness 
to him here. People at times have sort of soft-pedaled this scene in Jesus' life because they're uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus could get angry. Lambs don't get angry. They're, They're soft. They're nice. They're too kind. Jesus would never get angry with people. He would never push something over. But yet we see it right here. That Jesus has... He's overturned the tables. Jesus has made a whip. Again, he's not like smacking them. He's whipping them to get them. I don't know what kind of day that is at the temple, but that is, if somebody comes up in here with a whip, we're going to leave, right? Like, and it's not going to be a good thing. It's never a good thing to get whipped. But this, it, we're given this vision here of what righteous anger looks like. That there is something here that is preventing the worship of God. And Jesus is not having it. That's because he's serious about worship. You see, the temple itself, the the purpose of the temple, the reason it was ever constructed to begin with was for worship. It was for the purpose of glorifying God. That was it. And these people who are selling the animals, these people who are changing the money beyond any morality, any issues of morality involved in that, whether or not they're ripping people off or not, beyond that, the chief sin here is that they are distracting others from worshiping God. They're actually standing between God and those who might be seeking Him. Instead of psalms of praise, it was the bleeding of sheep and oxen in the room. Instead of, instead of the confessions of sin and repentance, it's the cooing of, of pigeons in their cages. And instead of, the, instead of the silence of prayer, what we'd be hearing is the haggling of the money changers. Again, none of those things are inherently evil. They're just in the wrong place. And that tells us something of how, how we might often fail in our worship. We get distracted by the things of the world. Instead of meditating on the word of God in worship, we, we think through the grocery list that we have to pick up on the way home. It's okay, I know you, because I'm one of you. No, I, I've done the exact same thing. I know, instead of thinking about and giving our lives into praise to God, we're thinking about, could they play this song faster or slower or more? Uh, or with, you know, it'd be really nice if they had a drum set or if they had an organ or if they, like, I mean, we, we have all these distractions in our mind all the time. Instead of lifting our voices in praise to the God who gave us voices to praise, we get critical of song choices. I wish they'd play more new hymns. I've literally had the same person tell me on one week, I wish we would have, by the way, it wasn't in this church, but um, this was a recurring conversation in a previous one. Uh, I wish we'd play more of those contemporary hymns, man. Like the next week, I wish we'd play more of the old hymns. Same guy. The next week, you know, that prayer went a little long. Yeah, Pastor Dale, he went too long this week. Man, really? Like, at what point did you stop and actually just worship? I want to respect your time. Y'all know, I got kids in there too. I don't want you having to go pick up screaming, hungry children. And my wife's keeping the nursery, so it's part self preservation for me today, right? 
I don't want her having to deal with that. I want you to get out of here on time. But man, if we're sitting there going, all right, listen, I got an appointment at 12, that's going to be a problem. I'll tell you how I learned this lesson. When I was in college, I got invited to play on this, um, this very elite sort of flag football league team, okay? Um, and, and I know that's shocking to some of you. Um, the, but I'm serious. These teams were all sponsored by like these big businesses. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like our team was sponsored by Merrill Lynch, and they would buy you like crazy gear, to wear. This is like when there was no such thing as Under Armour, so it was just nice cotton, right, at that time. <laughs> Not Egyptian, but nice, right? It was just, it was just soft uh, shirt. And so, and so they would buy you the gear. They'd pay for you to travel. They'd, pay, they'd put you up in these hotels all around the country. So you would wear their name on your, on your back and, and compete in these tournaments. And, and most of the league was filled with like former uh, NFL and, and college guys. So yes, I stood out um, a little uh, for sure. Uh, the games were on Sunday afternoons. They started at 1 o'clock p.m., and they started at 1 p.m. because at that time, they wanted to avoid conflicting with church, which sounds crazy to me today. If you're a parent navigating the world of sports and athletics with your kid today, that's an insane thing to think about, that there was a, a league of adults who actually tried to guard the hours for church. Games were on Sunday And I would find myself there on Sunday mornings, sitting there thinking through the plays in my head while I'm supposed to be worshiping. I'd be considering the roster, who were we playing? There were actually some guys that I was like, I wonder if I get their autograph, like after the game, that'd be really cool. (laughs) Hey man, good game. Can you sign this? You know, just, um, and and so I'd be thinking through the roster. I'd be thinking, all right, if, 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 if we, have, like if we have communion today, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it on time because that's like another 10 minutes on the service. I, I was sitting there constantly just distracted by what I would have to do because my mind was not in worship. It was, it was somewhere else. And so I wasn't really coming to church to worship. I was coming to check a box. I was coming to go, look, God, I did this good thing. I was going to come do my good deeds, so now you will, you will give me something in return. I was coming in a way to try and merit the grace of God. But you see, true worship is undistracted. And I know enough about the world in which we live to know that there is just too much noise. Just too much noise in our world. Too many other things that press for our time. Too many distractions. So many of us wake up and the very first thing that we do is grab our device. That's the first thing we do in the morning. Let's see who posted in the middle of the night as if, as if we should care about that. And look, I'm not pointing fingers here at anybody other than me. This is, you are my confession booth this morning, okay? That we wake up and the first thing we care about is what's happening in the world rather than picking up our Bibles and asking God to speak to us. Too often we turn to the intoxicating attraction of social media rather than to our Father in heaven in prayer. We're turning our lives into the court of the Gentiles. We're putting just enough distractions in there that we can hold it together, but that we never actually have to deal with God. We're filling our lives, even with, even with good things, we're filling our lives with so much of it that we end up neglecting the giver of life. A.W. Tozer explains this phenomenon. He said this, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I want you to try and follow with me. He said, With our loss of the sense of majesty, 
majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper. By the way, he said those words in 1961. That's what he said about 1961, that we're overly distracted in 61? I mean, I wasn't alive in 61, so it was good for me. But can you imagine what that man looking at our world today would say about the noise and distractions? If he thought the church was bustling in 61, what would he say about 2018? 1 Peter 4, 7 tells us to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's the same as saying being clear-minded. Being clear-minded. And that's the first thing we need to see in this passage, that true worship is undistracted. True worship is undistracted. The next thing that we see is that true worship is wholehearted. Look back at verses 16 and 17 again. He's there in the temple, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Listen, I know y'all probably have a note at the bottom of your page in the Bible that says that that line, that quote comes from Psalm 69, right? If you look down the bottom, you see a little notation there. It's going to say that comes from Psalm 69. As it often happens, and, and I don't plan this, uh, but it happens to me a lot. My Bible reading plan for the year uh, took me this week to Psalm 69. Uh, I didn't, I, again, I didn't plan that, but that's a, it's a Psalm of David, and it's one where he is praying. Uh, David is pouring out his heart in the midst of a season of, of doubt, a season of, of spiritual oppression. It's one where he's, he's praying even against some, some outward persecution that's coming not from, not from pagan nations coming against the people of God, but actually from people within his own house. And the chief source of that, the chief source of that oppression, the chief source of his struggle, his pain in his life is his profound commitment to the temple of the Lord. David is being persecuted because of his commitment and to, to worship. And so he cries out. This is it's from Psalm 69. He says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel, for it is not for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. His heart has been so consumed, literally, uh, Literally devoured. That's what consume means. I've been chewed up by a desire, by a zeal for your house, by a passion for worship. It has become his highest aim in this life, his greatest mission. Worship has become the supreme goal for him. And those around him, they don't get it. Like they don't understand why he's now wired this way. 
They don't understand how, how his life has become so marked by a desire for worship. And he has actually begun to stand out and even be ostracized by those around him because worship has become his greatest joy in life. You know, sometimes we get wrapped up in what the church is doing, like what sort of programs, what sort of new initiatives, what sort of mission projects we're doing. We get so wrapped up in the doing that we forget that these things are not the ultimate goal. They're not the ultimate goal. One of my favorite books on the mission of the church is called Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, by, it's by John Piper. In fact, if you're going to read one John Piper book out of the thousand or so he's written, um, this is the one I recommend. Uh, it's his theology of missions. And he starts this. This is, a, this is the first page of the book. And so it sort of sets the trajectory for everything that will follow. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is, and then he goes on to say this, missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. Missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. He's saying what the Bible says, that worship is about the supremacy of God in over and above all things. The, the disciples of Jesus saw him in this moment. If you can imagine them, now they have not known him very long. By most accounts, he's, they've spent maybe a, a couple of months with him at the absolute most. And so now they see this man who, who last week we saw turn water into wine, right? They, they've seen that. Now they see him go into the temple and begin to whip people to get them out. And so they see this. They see the Lion of Judah in this moment as he's overturning tables, as he's pushed the merchants and the livestock out of the house of worship. They watched as the Lamb has become the Lion. And they remember the words of King David, zeal for your house will consume me. A heart devoted, that's what zeal is, is to be devoted to something above and beyond everything else. Just like my son is so devoted to his little toys who when I stood it up here, you could barely even see it. It's to be devoted, to be devoted to something. Zeal is, zeal for the true worship of our God will become my singular purpose in this life. That's what we should be about. It will be my wholehearted and the cleansing of the temple shows us just how seriously Jesus takes worship. I wonder what sort of things, what sort of things we need to drive out of our lives today. Like what sort of things are turning our hearts away from God today? Maybe it's our addiction to busyness. Maybe we just need to have something happening all the time. And the idea of being still frightens us more than anything else. Maybe it's, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it and some of you can get mad at me. Maybe it's our, our children's sports. I mean, I, maybe it is that. Maybe it's that we actually think that if we invest every drop of time, every moment of our life, that our kid will end up with a soft, comfortable, um, very, very easy, very, very American, and very, very worldly life. 
Maybe our zeal is for their chance at a good, safe, comfortable, and worldly life. You see, it's this type of sort of safe narcissism, acceptable narcissism that turns worship into a secondary thing. When my foremost zeal in life is for my kid to make it, then I'm giving him no chance of actually making it. You see, as a parent, my foremost goal is not to make sure he gets on the right soccer team. It's not to make sure that he has the opportunity to, to go to college. By the way, I love all you parents who think your kid's going to college on a scholarship. It's not happening unless he is a girl, okay? Title IX killed that for you years ago. Football and basketball get all the scholarships, period, all right? South Carolina won two national championships a few years ago. They had one baseball player on more than a half a scholarship. So if you think your investment in travel soccer right now is going to pay itself off in college, you're wrong. I love you. You're wrong. Buy your daughter a set of golf clubs and she'll go to school for free. I promise you, though. (laughs) The cleansing of the temple shows us how seriously he takes worship and how much we have marginalized it in our life and that this is not a new phenomenon. That people have been doing this forever. True worship is wholehearted. It's devotion. And finally, true worship is Christ-centered. Look back at verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Listen, it will never be, it never has been, and it will never be about bricks and mortar. It's not about carpet colors. It's not about how good the band is or how awesome the lighting is. It's not about how great your programs are. It's not about any of those things that will fade. Listen, every single one of those things will fade. They will go out of style and will have to inevitably be upgraded. Worship is about Jesus. That's it. That's it. Worship is about Jesus. The temple of the Old Testament was a place that D.A. Carson says was, this, was supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. You see, the temple was of central importance because God made his dwelling place there, there in the Holy of Holies, there behind the curtain, separated from man. But in Christ, the word became flesh, right? We've just done this in John 1. In Christ, the word became flesh and has dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And when the Lamb of God was slain for us, when he was nailed to that cross, as one of as one of the kids sweetly testified this morning, as he was nailed to that cross to satisfy divine justice for our sins, when he paid for my lustful heart, when he paid for my jealousy, for my pride, for my hatred, when he paid for those things, when he paid for my undistracted, half-hearted worship that I offer him so often, all those distracted affections. He paid the penalty that I deserve because I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. 
This is why when we bring the kids up here week after week and we keep going back to the law, ultimately those things are summarized in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. How many times have I failed in that this week? See, Jesus went to the cross as my substitute. He went as your substitute. He endured the cross, despising the shame, so that he might accomplish the will of his Father, of our Father in heaven. And I know the song says it, but the truth is, it was not my sin that held him there. Now, we're not going to cut that song, okay? But it wasn't my sin that held him there. It was his obedience to the Father. That's what held him there. My sin has no power over Jesus. Jesus made a choice to be obedient to the divine plan of redemption. It was his zeal. Not only did he, did he tell us to do it, he showed us what it looks like. It was his zeal for worship for the Father that led him to the cross, that he might redeem a people for his own possession and when he gave up his spirit, you remember this, we'll get there eventually in the end of John. When he gave up his spirit, as he hung there, he cried out something. It's one word in the Greek, but it's three in ours. It's, it is finished, right? Those were his words, that it is finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The dividing wall between God and man was broken, and now the temple of the Lord is not a building in Jerusalem. I don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. It's why I can gather here at any moment. It's why I can worship in my home. This is why I can worship in my office. Because the temple of the Lord now is in the hearts of his people. And he has made his dwelling place with you. A few weeks ago, we saw Jesus referring back to Genesis 28 and the story of Jacob's ladder. And he said, or we said, that, that Jesus is the true and better ladder. The angels of God ascend and descend on him, and he brings his people to heaven. When Jacob woke up from that dream, he realized that the place he was standing was, was holy ground, and he called it Bethel. Bethel literally means the house of God. When Jesus claimed to be the ladder, he was making a, an exclusive claim. He wasn't saying, I'm a ladder. He said, I, I, am, I am the ladder. There's not another one. I'm it. G.K. Beale says that Jesus' identification of himself with the temple stairway of Genesis 28 is, is another way of claiming that he, not the Jerusalem temple, is the primary link between heaven and earth. See, he is our ladder. He is our access, and that's how we understand him today. That's how we see Jesus today. He is our access to God. He opens the door and he calls out to you. He paid the penalty for our sin and now he beckons us into his family. And so now we can run to him. Like we can climb that ladder because we, because we see him now in glory. We see him as he truly is. And as his people, we can focus our lives on him. We can center our lives on him now. And then when the world inevitably looks at you as if you were a fool. Why do you waste every Sunday morning? Your kid could have this opportunity. Why do you give so much to the church? If you, ever have, if you never have your accountant at some point say, are you crazy? You're missing a real witness opportunity. 
if your accountant looks at you and says, you, you'd have a lot more money if you didn't give it to the church. Now, I'm not begging you to give money to the church. I'm just telling you, that was one of the most convicting moments in my life was sitting there with my wife when the accountant goes, I think y'all will have a problem. And I thought, uh-oh. She said, you know, if you didn't keep writing checks to that church, you'd have a lot more money. It's not going to make sense to the world. It's not. But true worship is centered on Christ, it is undistracted, and it is wholehearted because He alone is worthy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have torn that curtain in two, that You have become our excess, that You are our King. Lord, help us to live in humble reliance upon You today. Help us to walk in humility and grace tomorrow as those who have redeemed, been redeemed by you. And help us to give you our lives. Maybe even anew today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.